Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Ich warte seit Wochen auf diesen Tag und tanz vor Freude über den Asphalt. Als wär's sein Rhythmus, als gäb's sein Lied. Hello and welcome to Gegenpressing, the German football podcast from the Football Grad Network. I'm your host, Bryce Dunn, and we'll start off, as we always do, by going over the weekend's results. So, it was a good night on Friday night for Werner Bremen as they managed to beat Fortuna Dusseldorf 3-1. That sees them going up to it, and also a debut goal for American Josh Sargent scoring with his first touch into Saturday. And yes, we had plenty of derbies too, actually. Um, starting off with the Riviera derby, so we've seen Sancho with the winner after a soft penalty for Dortmund, putting him 2-1 up. Uh, Lucien Favre has uh, won his first ever Riviera derby, something previous uh, BVB title-winning coaches Hertzfeld, Sammer and Klopp failed to do. Exciting times in Dortmund. Moving on to Bayern, they managed to beat Nuremberg 3-0. Bayern moved up to third. Two interesting stats from that game. Seeing Robin Lewandowski score his 42nd brace in the Bundesliga and Ribery scoring on his 12th consecutive Bundesliga season. Fantastic by both players. Freiburg 3 RB Leipzig nil. Yes, we talked up RB Leipzig as a possible title challenger and also how good their defence was. And they managed to concede three, which is as many as they did in their prior 10 Bundesliga games. Kevin Bones made his 200th Bundesliga appearance uh, as Bar- Leverkusen won 1-0 against Augsburg. Wolfsburg 2 Hoffenheim 2, a late Kramerich goal managed to get Julian Nagelsmann's men a, a point, um, which is a good result after them being a trailing 2-1, I suppose. Um, going into um, the late kickoff game, we see Hertha 1, Frankfurt 0. That meant Hertha went into 6th, but Frankfurt failed to, concede or failed to score a goal for the first time since the Super Cup. Uh, back in August when they lost to Bayern Munich. Sunday's games, we've seen Mainz 1, Hanover 1. Late drama with a soft penalty ascending off and a goal disallowed. But that's seen um, Mainz score their 22nd consecutive penalty. Mm-hmm. They're only two away from a record. That's about all I can really say after that 1-1 draw. Uh, final game of the weekend was rather dire, rather boring, but Gladbach managed to do it with three late goals, picking up three points there. A good result for Dieter Hecking. Guys, um, well, it's been an exciting weekend. We, we're going to jump in by talking about uh, two derbies, but who am I talking to? That's Manu Vett. Manu, how have you been? Um, good, very good. How about you? Are all good over there in the UK? Yeah, all good. We we enjoyed seeing Sancho score. There was um, many of the uh, WhatsApp groups that I'm in. Uh, they were messaging saying, "What a goal!" Especially in a debut or or a debut a Riviera Derby, you know. And uh, what what a goal as well, eh? Yeah, a fantastic goal. I mean, 
we'll get to talk about it a lot in quite a bit. But yeah, that was that was definitely a good way to to, to score the winner, and it is a lot of background story to this one. So um, I think it's going to be fascinating to chat about it. Yeah, absolutely. And one man that will be um, looking forward to talking about it, uh, joining you and I, uh, is Chris Williams. Chris, how have you been? Very good, Bryce. Thank you. Um, I've been busy. It's been a really busy weekend. Loads of football matches, not just in Germany, but across the UK as well. So, yeah, all the days seem to be blended into one at the moment. But, yeah, cracking week of uh, a cracking weekend of football. Um, and a really important week to come in Europe. So, yeah, lots to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Loads. So, guys, uh, let's jump in. And as I said, we're going to talk uh, derbies, but we're not going to start off with the Riviera derby, but we're going to start off with the Bavarian derby, which was uh, Bayern Munich and Nuremberg. Um, Manu, um, you were saying that, you know, uh, that this used to be a really big matchup. I, I mean, if you look... Um, over the weekend, some people probably would skip over this one and say that there were other bigger games going on, but that didn't used to be the case. No, not at all. Um, you know, look, Nuremberg is one of the most historical teams in, in German football in general. And um, they are actually the club with the second most titles in the history of German football. Um, granted, they haven't won a title since 1968. Um, and they actually hold the record to be the only team in Germany to win the title um, and then they would get relegated the following year. Um, so, yeah, this is, this is, but at the same time, this is, this is one of the biggest clubs in, in Germany. It's Nuremberg is the second biggest city in Bavaria. And when I was, when I grew up in Germany, this was a big game. Club against Bayern, the two big teams in Bavarian football, the two big cities in Bavaria, um, squaring off against each other, right? Um, the problem, of course, in recent years is that as the Bundesliga has grown in financial power, um, as the, the television contract has become bigger and bigger and the gap between Bundesliga two and the Bundesliga in terms of financial, financial power has become bigger. Um, it used to be if you got relegated into the second division and you came back, you could, you be, could be competitive right away. And unfortunately, and there's an article up on this on, on, on Fußballstadt.com. Unfortunately, the gap now is so big that if you get relegated and you come back, it's really hard to right away be competitive, right? Unless you're with one of those bigger sites like Hamburg or Köln. So, um, unfortunately, it isn't much of a derby anymore, um, or not as, not as historic of a derby. And of course, we had another derby that we're going to chat quite a bit about, but it is a game that has a lot of history in German football. And Chris, uh, what a victory for Bayern. Yes, I mean, this is probably a matchup that we would have said in, in previous years. Um, you know, a 3 0 victory is to be expected, but, you know, the, in recent weeks, they've kind of um, got points on the board again and things are looking a little bit brighter. Yeah, if they'd failed to um, beat Nuremberg this weekend, I think that would have been um, another nail in the coffin for those um, who who want Nico Kovacs to stay. Um, but they, they went out and won 3-0, very professional performance, but it should be expected, really. Manu's already touched on the financial gap. You know, Bayern are the most richest club in Germany. Um, one of the top clubs in Europe, so they should be beating um, Nuremberg quite convincingly, and, that, and that's what they did at the end. So uh, there's a lot of talk are Bayern Munich back. I think we need to see them play a little bit more of a higher calibre yet, because that's where they struggle this season. 
No, Chris, you're quite right. I mean, you just look at some of the results this year. Dortmund put seven past Nuremberg. Leipzig put six past them. Um, Schalke put five past them. Hoffenheim put five past them. Um, you know, yes, they're learning. Nuremberg are learning. Do, do, do they get used? They're getting used to a bit better to the to the Bundesliga. But um, my match report on this match was done in the 57th minute when Bayern scored their third goal because. They basically just took the foot off the pedal. They have a big midweek game in Amsterdam, right? Um, and so they basically just completely took the foot off the pedal and circulated the ball, um, which, which I guess is expected if you screen a lot. But um, they they could have easily, if they kept the if they kept the pace up, they could have easily scored another three or four goals. And I, I think an interesting thing to note, um, Chris, is is um, this double pivot that people have been talking about, um, especially on- online with uh, Goretzka and Kimmich. I mean, for anyone that is going, what the hell's a double pivot? I mean, c- can you possibly explain it for us? <laughs> yeah, sure. So it's um, normally it's a um, a four four two formation, but I mean you can play it the way that Bayern have done here, which is a four one three two. Basically, it's um, it's two midfielders that hold back and they will alternate um, between which one goes forward and which one goes backwards, and it's the gap. Um, in between the defence and the more attacking midfield um, that allows a, a quick, fast transition. So that's in essence what a double pivot is, um, or a double six. Um, and they will alternate between one of them goes forward. Leipzig played it um, quite a lot, and especially the first season when they had uh, Naby Keita. So that's that's where it was used to really good effect. I think if you look at teams like Leipzig, um, Dortmund don't tend to use it, but exceptionally fast transition sides normally have a double pivot. Uh, okay, well, thanks for explaining. And uh, Manu, do you think that Bayern are, are looking a, a bit more solid in midfield, where moving Kimmich in, into this position? I mean, he he was originally a midfielder anyway. He wasn't, you know, playing the on the defensive line, was he? Yeah, yeah, he was a midfielder, and they signed him as a midfielder when they brought him in from from Leipzig, and then uh, the retirement, Philipp Lahm's retirement sort of opened a door for Kimmich to get regular playing time um, in the starting 11 as a right back, right? But this is something, Chris, you and I have discussed off-air quite a bit, that when we watched him play for Germany against better opposition or for for Bayern against Real Madrid, that was one game in particular, he's definitely, when he when he's cornered, he always tries to solve everything by... The mid, mid the midfield method, you know, try to find a pass out. Um, he's not like David Alaba when David Alaba is in a pickle. He just uses his athleticism to to triple himself out of a situation. And Kimmich always looks for that pass, and that kind of shows you that he's more of a midfielder, a midfielder mindset. And I think he's he's moving him to midfield. Joachim Löw has done the same for for in the German national team, right? And I thought that gave the German national team a lot more stability in midfield and Kovac is now doing the same at Bayern and I think that really works especially because it that allows allows him to kind of drop back deeper and then have the the, the partner the, the, the other play midfielder playing in a double pivot play a more athletic role and that in turn has really freed up Leon Goretzka and I mean this was one of the main criticisms that we had in the last few weeks when it came to Kovac, is that they signed this player from Schalke, one of the most talented midfielders in German football, and they didn't know how to use him. And 
I feel like in a double pivot, playing with a player, with a holding midfielder like Joshua Kimmich, it actually works quite well. And this will actually also quite work quite well, you know, with Thiago and Tuliso, right? So they actually have now two players for each of those positions. And I think that it might actually be something that could help Kovac in the long term to just stabilize that midfield area a little bit because having them play in that 4-3-3, which is the formation that he loosed for a long time with Harvey Martinez as the pivot, Javi Martinez has been the player that has been on the decline the most for me this season, or one of the players. We get to talk about a few others, but um, he just doesn't have the speed and he doesn't have that ball control. Um, I think Joshua Kimmich had he completed 96% of his passes in this game against Nuremberg, right? And that's who you want. Um, you want someone younger, you want someone who's, who's really good and controlling the ball, and he has a bit more speed than Javi Martinez. He doesn't have the speed for a right back, but he definitely has the speed for a holding midfielder. And I think both of these players can, and Goreska's more of an attacking player, but he has got a good defensive mindset. So they can like switch the tasks that they're being given. So um, if one of them's asked to take up a defensive role, the other can distribute the ball quite quickly, whether that be sideways, forwards or backwards. Um, I think that's what it relies on. It relies on, on two very quick players and two players who can play an attacking midfield role as well as a more defensive midfield role because they do need to switch it. And that's the beauty of a double pivot is you don't know which um, you don't know which deep line central midfielder is going to go forward the first. And that's what Leipzig did to really good effect. And I can see that Bayern, if they're going to use these two in that role, it may be quite a good partnership that they'll strike up. And uh, I think personally that this role will fit Goretzka better and especially with Kimmich because as you've identified and as Joachim Love identified when he was stuck out on the out on a right back he, he looks to play the ball so you know more often than not he's being caught occasionally and and this role I think fits him really well this is a good system for Bayern I think. Manu you're with with tactical changes you know and different setups some players end up being winners because they suit um, the the way of play, and 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 some players are obviously losers uh, in that scenario as well. That it, it doesn't work for them. I mean, who's coming out better here, and who who's maybe losing out? I mean, is is there particular players of mind? Yeah, I think actually this has been. I think Bayern's best player over the last three weeks was actually Thomas Müller, and I think that this the system works better for him because it's that. That four-two-three-one that almost looks like a four-two-two-two, because Müller can play right next to Lewandowski or just behind him, right? And um, it's that half-nine role that Müller, that suits Müller the best. Um, in a four-three-three, he often played as a number eight. Müller is by no means a number eight. Um, he just does not. He seemed so lost in that role, um, but he's he's much better in that role. And I think because. Müller plays right behind Lewandowski or next to Lewandowski. That also benefits Lewandowski. His scoring rate has gone up as well, right? And it also has benefited. Knabry has been looking a lot better. I think even Ribery and Robben in their final year, they will actually benefit from the system quite a bit too. Um, Koman, when he comes back in, um, he's being slowly fed into the side. I think he will massively benefit from this because it, you need two quick wingers that can also cut inside, right, to play the system. Um, so those those are the big winners for me. Um, Javi Martinez, I've already mentioned him. I think he's just too slow for a quick 4 2 2 2. I just don't think he fits that. And he's not a great center back anymore either. So I think he's going to be one that's going to be shipped out. Um, 
we've talked a bit about Mats Hummels already. I think he's a player that um, the official word is he's been sick. Um, I I think there is much else to in, at play there. If you play um, an attacking system like that, um, you have to have quick defenders as well. And Mats Hummels just isn't quick enough. And so I think that that's actually going to be an area where they're going to make a lot of changes in, in, in defense. Um, I think Niklas Süle is going to be the def- defender of the future. Um, open the, the most open secret in German football is that Benjamin Pavard is coming in from Stuttgart, right? There's another defender coming in, and I can see them sign another defender on top of that. Um, Matthias de Lecht from Ajax has been mentioned a few times. I don't see very much room for Hummels and Harvey Martinez and maybe even Boateng after that. So, um, those are the, those are the kind of changes that are coming. And, um, another player, and that's because he's been part of that group that really tried to push Kovac out is Hamas, Hamas Rodriguez. I don't see a good role in that system for him either. So Chris, I mean, this is another victory for Bayern. Um, things are looking a, a little bit more positive for Kovac. I mean, we've only got three games, three Bundesliga games um, left until the uh, the winter break. Um, they're going to be facing Hanover, RB Leipzig and, and Frankfurt. Do, do you see them being able to continue winning those three games, go into the winter break with a little bit of pressure on uh, on Dortmund at the top? I think if they don't take nine points out of nine, then uh, Niko Kovac will be under a little bit more pressure come the um, winter pause because Bayern are now um, the third. Obviously, they're still quite some way behind their um, nine points behind Dortmund. So if they've got any aspirations about catching them, they need to be picking up points um, and hoping that Dortmund drop um, where they're picking up. And I can't see that at the moment. So Bayern will need to take nine points out of nine. And then if they can... Uh, if they can get into the uh, winter break in second place, I think that will put them in a better stead to really attack when they come back after the uh, after the winter and and see if they can catch Dortmund. So it's going to be a tough one for them, but um, they they really need to be um, a lot higher in the table if they've got any real chance of catching them. But you never know. Yeah, they can't really afford to drop any points at all, being nine points behind. And they have the toughest schedule going into the winter than Dortmund have. I mean, we all expected Dortmund to maybe drop points um, against Schalke, right? That didn't happen. And uh, Bayern, I mean, they have an easy fixture against Hannover on Saturday. But then um, next Wednesday, they are playing Leipzig, right? And That could be one where I could maybe even see them drop points. And then, I mean, yeah, Dortmund, I mean, we can get to Dortmund in a moment, but they're playing... Um, on Friday, the 21st, they're playing Gladbach. But Bayern on that Saturday are playing Frankfurt. So um, three out of three is could be difficult. And if Dortmund gets three out of three uh, wins and theirs, whew, that's a big gap. Yeah, I'm sure if uh, Bayern had the choice, they'd swap at least two of those sides you know, for, for the final three games going into the winter break, wouldn't they? But yeah. uh, guys, let's talk about the other derby, the Riviera derby. Um, I think we need to go to Manu first on this. Um, you called two one, didn't you, in your in your prediction on on the football grad uh, page? Um, how did you how did you uh, possibly get this one right? I mean, is it because obviously Schalke haven't done very well, but uh, you know, when it comes to these derbies, they're, they're always fairly close. You know, both teams raise their game. Yeah, and I was I was 
as uh, for Dortmund, I was worried about that um, defensive lineup that Schalke play, and um, you know, I had a glance on the game. I was I was covering the Bayern game, but I had a game on on a side screen, so because Chris was doing the the match coverage, but it it really looked like that Schalke was playing, really trying to shut them down with that uh, five in the back, and um, going for like maybe a point, right? And um, I I suspected that Dortmund wouldn't score very many goals. Um, but that they would have just enough to to find a way through, and that is exactly what they did. But yeah, that it just seemed like a typical derby result. Um, I think I was actually almost this little bit leaning towards a draw, just simply because Dortmund has struggled so so much against um, teams that play with that really defensive setup, um, and that's that's the one thing that I think a lot of Dortmund fans were worried about going into this match. And I think that's why they were so satisfied when they did end up getting the result. Because, I mean, we've talked about Domenico Tedesco for the last 18 months. And while he managed to get finish second with Schalke last season, we always thought that his football was, you know, a little dire. Um, it was very result-based. And... Um, I'm glad that they, I'm actually glad Dortmund won this game because it, it's, it's a win for football because we want teams to play good football. And that's what Lucien Favre's sides usually do. And Dominico Tedesco's sides, uh, have not. Yeah. So if we go to Chris on this one, uh, how, how exactly did, uh, Favre at Dortmund manage to come out on top of this one? I mean, a beautiful second goal from Sancho, but, um, it, did they try to change anything around I me? Mean, what what tactics did they use for this? Well, they didn't really change anything that we've seen of late, actually. Um, and they've been they did on Saturday what they've done so well for the vast part of this season is they were very patient, or maybe for the last four weeks. Think after the uh, after they dropped points against Hertha, well, I've seen a different Dortmund. Uh, now I spoke about two weeks ago, saying that this team needs to believe in itself that it can win the title, and I think we saw that on the weekend. Um, it was a very strange game. It was a proper derby, and it was a full-blooded derby. Um, but I put in my report that's on Football Stat that I thought Dominic uh, Dominico Tedesco had his players fired up too much. Now I'll explain that because you need to be fired up, especially in a derby and especially in a game as big as that. You need to be mentally ready and mentally prepared. But if players go out onto the pitch and they're too fired up, it means it means that the red mist is in front of them. They're very much tunnel vision, and and for small parts of this game, especially the first half, this is pretty much what Schalke were doing. Um, I mean, the first couple of yellow cards we picked up um, were through um, a, a crazy challenge that didn't need to be done, and then descent from um, Salif Sane. He got yellow carded after he was awarded a free kick, so he was going mad at the referee, even though he'd been awarded a free kick, and there was just confusion that was raining throughout Schalke and it's because they were so fired up and if you watch um, Dortmund's goal the defending is terrible now this has been a problem with Schalke the whole season is they've been very leaky at the back but I'm, I'm pretty convinced that not only they've been leaky but for this game they were so fired up and they just weren't concentrating fully um, and I think once Tedesco got them in at half time and calmed them down and told them that they were still in this game, they came out and played a much better second half, and it could have gone either way in the end. Uh, you know, they, uh, they came back via a bit of a contentious penalty. There's lots of contact there. You know, Royce did stand on his foot, but I think he wins the ball fairly before. And there'll, there'll be people who say it is a penalty and people who say it isn't a penalty. At the end of the day, it was awarded, and Caligiuri scored it. Uh, and then after that, Schalke did try and take the game to Dortmund, but 
eventually Dortmund's class sort of came to the fore and, and they went and won. And once they got the goal, it looked like maybe they might get some more. But Schalke, if they'd adopted the, the second half performance, if they'd started the game in that fashion and weren't so raw and so full of emotion and, and prone to outbursts and, and lack of concentration, I think they probably could have got a result here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, where exactly does this... Um, I mean, we've, we've talked about how good uh, Dortmund um, have been this season, you know, that hence their top and they're so far ahead. Uh, but, I mean, apart from maybe it being a little bit dull, uh, Manu, if, if we talk about uh, Schalke, I mean, have we seen them come on, you know, a little bit you know, in the last few weeks? Uh, I mean, it was a horrendous start, but... Are things looking any way more positive? Well, they they have fourteen or thirteen, sorry, with uh, fourteen points from fourteen games. Um, I think that is that that is that's not just a horrendous start. We're almost at the halfway point of the season, and um, they're nine points out of Europe, right? and that's where they need to be as a club. And I think. They're not going to win the Champions League. I think that's pretty much certain, right? They they qualify for the round of sixteen out of possibly the weakest Champions League group there is, but um, they're not going to win it. So that doesn't leave them really any path to Europe. And I think they need it'd be a, a huge surprise for me if they if they sort of slip into the the Champions League spots in the second half of the season, um, and the, the Europa League spots even seem to be very very far out of reach because if you look at the teams that are in that top seven, uh, maybe even in the top eight, they're all teams that pretty consistently get their points, right? And I can't see the likes of Leipzig, Frankfurt, Hertha, Hoffenheim get nine points less than Schalke will in the remaining 20 games of the season. That's a big ask, right? And on top of that, you have to have sites like Wolfsburg and Mainz that are just behind that, that have also been a little bit more consistent. So I I don't know what they're going to do with this half season. Um, I mean, Christian Heidel and Tedesco promised in the summer that they would cultivate the way Schalke were playing. I think a lot of Schalke fans were very accepting of the way Schalke was playing last year because they understood this was a project, right? But this isn't a step back. This is like falling off the cliff. And... Um, Tedesco tried to play good football the first five games and they lost every single one of those five games. And then he basically went back to what he knew and that was that 3-5-2. And that is a big question mark to me. Um, maybe that, that's all you're going to get with him um, tactically. That's it. The bottom line is Tedesco is a defensive coach who gets his results playing defensive football. Um, and I don't know if that's enough for Schalke and Schalke fans because they're very demanding fans and this is one of the biggest clubs in Germany they're the third the biggest club in Germany by membership and that's that's something very important right they're the third biggest club in Germany by fans um, after Bayern and Dortmund yet they unlike Bayern and Dortmund they never regularly finish in the top four it's like one year in one year out one year back in two years out um, and I think they have to really ask themselves um are they willing to do this with Tedesco or are they going, are, are, might they, will, will they have to do a completely different approach? And 
um, that is risky in itself because that's usually the reaction that you get of, Sch of Schalke as well. I think also what's not helping them is that they don't have any goals coming from anywhere. Yeah. Um, and Okay, they got back into it via a penalty, but had that penalty not been awarded, um, I, I couldn't see them maybe getting that initial goal. Once they got that goal, they then went looking for another one, but they didn't have anyone um, to sort of to, to put the ball in the back of the net. And Weston McKenney was playing up front. I don't really think that's his position. He's a central midfielder, but he's being played up front because they haven't got any forwards. Bergstaller went off, um, looked like he damaged his knee. So how long he's out for, we'll have to wait and see. Um, they don't seem to have anybody that can come in and take over and start and start scoring. They simply don't know where the net is. And that's a real problem if you are a bit of a defensive um, coach because when you get the odd opportunity to score a goal, you need to take it. And if you haven't got anyone to take it, then you end up um, in situations like this where you know, you're going to get beat even though some of your play probably deserved a little better. Well, they, they signed an army of players. I mean, they signed uh, Mark Oak, they signed Steve uh, Skripski. Mm -hmm. Um, I hope I didn't butcher that name too badly. Um, la a couple of years ago, they signed Braille and Bolo for big money from, from Switzerland. I think they played close to 30 million euros for him, right? Uh, they have Franco Di Santo, who they brought them from Werder Bremen. Um, there's, there's a lot of attacking players. I mean, the only one who actually has been scoring consistently up until this season was Guido Burgstaller, who they got on a cheap, um, from, from Nuremberg. Oh yeah, and then they have Cedric Teuchert, who's a who's a talented striker as well. Who they also brought in from Nuremberg. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's it seems like they, they, they Christian Heidel signed a lot of players, but for some reason Tedesco doesn't seem to get them working. And uh, you're quite right. I mean, um, <laughs> they had to play Weston McKinney as a striker in this game. Um, I don't know. I think that's quite telling if you you're basically playing someone um, as a striker because he has a history of playing running back in American football. Um, that is actually the rationale behind behind this move, Chris. And that's just not enough for me, personally. Yeah, I mean... You're quite uh, right. I know, I know Booth and, um, and Bolo are out injured, but they do have more options on the bench and within the squad to, to be playing... You know the right player in the right position. I think ultimately coaches live and die by their their selection. And when you start mm. getting some really strange selections, as in playing players completely out of position, not only is that unfair on the player, but it's unfair on the rest of the squad. And that's when you start to get a bit of um, diversion within the squad, and things start to happen, and players start to fall out, and then managers ultimately end up getting, or coaches end up getting sacked. Well, what what it almost seems like is that he he plays a system. But he didn't have the players to play his system, so he just forced his players to play his system, even though those players can't play those positions. That's what. That's how I interpreted the whole Weston McKinney playing striker thing, right? Also, uh, uh, yeah, and um, I think I don't know if he's under pressure, but they have to play him because he's such a big player for them and in such a global audience as well. And maybe they're taking risks where they probably don't need to take them. I mean, look at Borussia Dortmund. This was, you know, billed as uh, as the two Americans playing off against each other, and and um, Lucien Favre went with his strongest side. Yeah. I mean, goals clearly is a problem. I've just looked up as well and seen that you know their highest goal scorer um, is Bentaleb with three, 
But um, I mean, Chris, uh, we've been a big fan of uh, Bergstaller uh, in the past. You know, all three of us uh, mentioning that we love that he, he gets stuck in. But I mean, 14 games played, you know, only two goals. I mean, he's not, even he's not quite himself at the moment. Well, you'll always get that from strikers. They go, you know, they go in in peaks and troughs, and some days everything they'll touch will go in. I think I remember last year he scored with his backside and. If you're in a vein of form as a striker, that happens, and occasionally the opposite happens, where you can't buy a goal for three or four months, maybe. But that's when you've got other players within the team who can step into that. Look at any successful team across Europe at the moment, and if their main striker isn't firing, there's always someone else who can come in and, and get those goals, be that forward line, midfield, or even occasionally defenders can get in there and chip in with a goal. This isn't happening for Schalke, unfortunately. Um, you know, as you quite rightly said, Benzlev's a top scorer with three. Then after that, um, it's Bergstaller and Mbolo who are now both out injured. And Chris, well, what type of side can we expect to see uh, Tedesco field when they take on uh, Lokomotiv Moscow uh, during the week? Because they're already through. I mean, this is Tuesday night. I take it he'll just um, let some of the, the players that don't really feature as much play. Well, yeah, he's, he's obviously he's got a squad of um, of 23 for a reason. So uh, if I was him, I'd completely rotate it. Uh, as long as he plays the players uh, that, are, that are registered, he'll have no problem. There's many people who will say, oh, it's disrespectful to the competition. Well, it's not. They need to look at, at what's best for Schalke. And if that is to heavily rotate for a game when they've already qualified, then, then that's what they should do. Because at the moment, Manu's quite right, they're not going to win the Champions League. I pretty much don't think they'll get through the round of 16, so whoever they draw, that'll probably be the end of the road for them. So Tedesco's going to be judged on his, his positioning in the um, Bundesliga at the end of the day, and if they're 13th and 14th come round about February or March time, I think he could be seeing the door. Yeah, definitely a tricky times. But um, Chris, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with you, and I'm gonna say, well, it's more or less the same scenario uh, midweek for Dortmund as they take on Monaco. I mean, they're sitting in second; they've qualified. So, well, what type of side is Favre likely to play? Well, Lucien Favre is blessed with um, quite a few decent players in in reserve. So, if you look at who didn't start this game, Guerra, Toprak, Dahoud, Gotze, Philip, Pulisic. So he can, um, and of course, Marvin hits in goal. Uh, or Marwin hits in goal, so he can pretty much, Dortmund are in that position because of their recruitment, that they can put out a second string in inverted commas, which is still full of really good players. So um, I think he will rotate, and you'll see the likes of um, Christian Pulisic, Philip, Gotze get a full run out, maybe even Dahoud, and I'll probably, um, I'll probably envisage his uh, him resting some of his back line, um, probably a Kanji or even Diallo. And I suppose one final um, point is just um, how good is uh, Sancho at the moment? I mean, it seems like every week we're saying uh, positive things about him. Uh, and, and as I said at the top of the show, everyone keeps messaging me just saying, oh, this kid over in Germany, he's, he's, he's so good at the moment. Because obviously you and I, Chris, are, are based in the UK. You know, people are starting to talk about him and get excited about him. Yeah, they are. And quite rightly so. He's a fantastic player, but I think he's benefiting from the fact that he's in a really good um, Dortmund side at the moment. So whilst to take nothing away from him, because he's a fantastic prospect, he's playing in front of or alongside of players like Thomas Delaney, Axel Witzel, who are just completely running their area of the field. 
and allowing the forward players to be really successful. So um, his his link up in this game was phenomenal. I mean, his goal is is a one two with um, Guerrero that gets him in and scores, and um, it was a really good goal for him because he's had a, he's had a bit of a bad time lately with his um, grandma passing away. So he dedicated that goal to her. Um, and you could see the emotion from when he scored. He almost dropped, well, he did drop to his knees and then to the floor. Um, so you can see it meant a lot to him. But for everyone's talking about how good um, how good Jaden Sancho is, he's been allowed to be good because of the players around him. I think if this is a season ago um, and maybe he hasn't got the right players around him at the right time and there isn't the right feeling along the squad. He's not as good. We saw him last season and he was very good, but he was nowhere near this level. Um, and I think that the player himself will acknowledge that it's because of who he's got around him, especially um, especially in the midfield, but also those at the back. He's got centre-backs and right-backs and left-backs who are looking to play the ball quickly to him because they know the skills he has. So everybody's playing to that one strength at the moment. Um and whilst Sancho is a fantastic player, I, I don't think he is a standout in this side at the moment because everybody's getting that standout. Last week, Axel Witzel was phenomenal. This week, Thomas Delaney was phenomenal. Okay, yes, Sancho scores and he scores at the right time, but he's, he's a product of the system that he's in. But yeah, he is a phenomenal player and I think he's got the building blocks to be a very, very, very um, successful top player and and could probably name his club at the moment in the world where he wanted to go to. And he's certainly going to be a massive prospect for England in the future. Um, but take him out of this side. Let's say, for instance, you would drop him into Schalke. All of a sudden, he wouldn't make Schalke as good as Dortmund. He's a product of the system that he's in. Yeah, and a coach, Lucien Favre. Lucien Favre makes players better. That's that's just a fact. Lucien Favre was was the man who made Marco Royce the player he is today. And um I think I think that, that is really that's really something that you need to highlight in this Dortmund side is the work that Lucien Favre has been able to do in such a short short period of time to step in and um make a side that barely scraped into the top four last season is now half a season away of winning the German championship and be competitive in the Champions League. And um, I think there's always been talk about Lucien Favre, how good of a coach will he be once he gets his hands on the top side. I think we're, we're kind of finding out right now because before he worked in, in, in Zurich, then he worked in Gladbach and did wonderful things with Gladbach. Um, before that, he was in, with Hertha Berlin, where he club that he uh, almost got it to the Champions League. And then, of course, in, um, in Nice, where he done amazing things as well. And I think that is really, um, the players like Sancho or Marco Royce, who's having the best year, um, of his career ever since leaving maybe Gladbach. Um, he's just been stellar. And I think that is really the work, Lucien Favre's work. Um, same with Axel Witzel. I mean, this is a player who was very good. He was, was excellent in, in Russia and then he was excellent in China, but we, it was kind of, we didn't, really know if he could translate that game that he played for in those leagues and for of course for the Belgium national team and that's that's Lucien Favre's work you know he's to build that tactical system to put a tactical system in place in a matter of one summer and make all these new pieces work the way they do that's phenomenal um, and I don't think we've we've seen coaching like that in a long time in Germany but to answer your question Bryce yes Jaden Sancho is a fantastic watch and 
there's not many players across Europe at the moment that when I watch them, they genuinely excite me because you don't know what they're going to do, and especially the speed he's got. And he's got that. He's got the benefit of being a teenager where he's just not scared of anything. He's just got no fear, so he will take players on. He's got no respect, if you want to call that, for who they are or who they play for. He just wants to take them on, play, run, assist, and score, and, and that's a joy to watch at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Those type of players, you know, that they're what um, what football fans want to see, don't they? Um, guys, uh, I feel that we've talked about uh, Dortmund and Bayern uh, enough, but we we need to talk a little bit about a side that um, have lost their last two games uh, in Eintracht Frankfurt. Um, Manu, they they lost one nil um, over the weekend to Hertha Berlin, and they were doing ever so well before this, but now two defeats. In a row, I mean, has the bubble burst? Have they been found out? I mean, what what's going on here? Yeah, has the bubble burst? I think that maybe too early, um, maybe too early to answer that question. They're still they're still fifth. Uh, I think seven wins, two draws, five defeats. Um, what stands out is the thirty to seventeen goals, right? Um, maybe it's not that the bubble has burst price, but it's just that the accumulation of games is finally catching up a little bit to them. You know, they, they've done very, very well in the Europa League. They wrapped up their group win in four matches. And I think, um, when you watch those last two games, um, the Wolfsburg and the Hertha game, I thought that they actually played very well through midfield, but, um, that attacking three almost you know, you know when you when you do all the right things, but you're just a little bit tired, and you you just can't make that final step. And there's just so many times when you see that with Frankfurt, and I think that side just needs needs a rest. Um, and it's they just I felt against her that it just seemed a little bit overplayed. It wouldn't be the holiday season if there wasn't candy, right? Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. And uh, is there anything we can say positive about Hertha in this performance? Yeah, I mean, um, this, is, this has been a question that we were asked a lot. Um, Marco Gruwich, right, the head of midfielder was on loan from Liverpool. Um, he's been he's been excellent, and I mean, Hertha now Hertha had a little bit of a tough time um, ahead. You know, they had a couple, they had a few matches. They were four or five matches without a win. And then they beat Hannover last week. Um, actually, the, the game before that, even the 3-3 draw against Hoffenheim, right? Then they beat Hannover. Uh, now they beat beat Frankfurt. That got them back straight into the table. They're now in the top six. They are in even points with with Frankfurt. So, um, And there was a little bit of controversy in Berlin because of Paul Dardai and uh, Breitz, um, the sporting director. And the head coach, they're sort of disagreeing on how to take this team forward. And Hertha needed a couple of good results. And I think this result in particular is, is very good for them because um, beating Frankfurt, a side that is, everyone has been talking about, including us, um, is not a small feat. Uh, that's, that's very, very good work by them. 
Yeah, nicely done, eh? Uh, I, I mentioned at the start of the show, Chris, that, um, well, that RB uh, Leipzig, you know, their defence was so good um, last week when we spoke about them. Um, also that, you know, that if they went on a bit of a run and Dortmund were to slip up, they might be considered title contenders. Boy, did did we really um <laughs> did we did we really give them a kiss of death there as they'd managed to lose three 0 to uh, Freiburg this week? Yeah, and and there's not even really an excuse that uh, maybe they were missing a few key players because I mean apart from um, Willie Orban at centre back, pretty much they had one of their strongest sides out. So um, yeah, it's going to be a disappointment for them. Um, sometimes you just have a really bad day at the office, but I think. Maybe sometimes also we're a little bit guilty of going, or oh, they've had a bit of a bad day. Well, Freiburg, even though they were beaten um, 2-0 by Dortmund on the last match day, were still very, very good, very disciplined. Um, they knew what they were doing. Christian Schreikers and well-drilled, um, especially in the formation he has. You know, and um, Cock and Harbour are, are working in that central area. And I, I just think... They are really good value for money. Um, if you want to go and watch a team play, go and watch Freiburg because they are a very exciting team to watch, especially if you like tactical displays. So I think we have to give Christian Strike and his team a lot of um, a lot of credit here because they went out and played pretty much a perfect game against Leipzig. Yeah, credit to them. Eh? Um, Manu, if we speak about uh, RB Leipzig... Um... You said that obviously if they're concentrating a little bit more on the on the league, because you never know what could happen this season with uh, with Bayern Munich not being quite the side that they have been. Uh, but have they needlessly maybe thrown away you know a Europa League campaign? Uh, you know, should they not have been trying to fight on both fronts? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think Ralf Rangnick, um, he was pretty. Um, well, we've seen sort of the two faces of Ralf Rangnick in, in the Europa League, right? That he's, he's been sort of gruffy. Um, Chris, Chris experienced that at Celtic, Celtic Park at the Paradise. And then, um, but before the season said he, he was one of those managers that said German teams have to be, have to take the Europa League more serious to get accumulated points that secure Bundesliga the fourth Champions League spot. So, um, I think Chris was, is quite right. I think. A few weeks ago, they identified the Bundesliga as as a competition that they could potentially challenge for, and um, sort of left didn't take the Europa League quite as serious as they should have because I think that um, I think they should have should get out of this group considering the teams that they're facing. Um, no disrespect to to Scottish sides, um, Austrian sides, and Norwegian sides, but if you come from the Bundesliga and um, you're supposed to be a team challenging for top four, you should be able to finish on top of them. But I think the big problem that Leipzig have and still have is that they just they went into the season with too thin of a squad. I mean, for about four weeks, they tried to sign Ademola Lukman from Everton, right? And I felt that... Although that he's a Lukman is a great player, I don't think that was actually what they needed. Now in last week um, we spoke about this last week quite a bit as well. They signed Tyler Adams. They finally got another midfielder, right? They're bringing him in from their um, affiliate in New York. So that's finally a midfielder that's arriving. But I feel in midfield in particular, Leipzig were very thin, and 
that has been an area that I felt like they've been very thin ever since Keita um, left. I, I mean, they haven't really addressed that whole Keita situation at all. They sort of said, okay, well, Kevin Campbell can play there, but they haven't really signed anyone to replace Navi Keita. So I feel that sometimes the squad is just a bit too thin for Leipzig. And if you are playing midweek, then that's just just not enough um, in my books. I'm curious to curious to hear what you think, Chris, but that that is basically what I've identified as their maybe biggest problem. Yeah, and, and when I spoke previously, especially after being at Celtic Park and seeing, you know, the lineup they went with, give or take, they did have a couple of injuries and seeing the way they played, especially the way Ragnick spoke afterwards, I did think that he prioritized the league over the Europa League purely because he doesn't have the squad to play um, twice a week at the highest level and compete on both levels. They don't have they don't have that strength in depth that you need to be able to to challenge for two trophies where if they just focused on one, then okay, yeah, they can get by the fact that they've got a very thin squad with the fact that they're only going to be playing once a week. Um, and unfortunately for them this week, um, they've had a bit of a shocker, but I, I wouldn't write them off just yet. It's just really unfortunate for them that when they're dropping points, there's others around them that are picking them up and that won't help their cause at all. Um, should they get through? into the round of 32 in the Europa League, I still think that they don't have the squad to fight for two, so Ragnik will still have to prioritise which one he goes for. Now, we could get to the start of um, spring and Leipzig uh, eight, nine, ten points off the title. Well, then he can turn around and say, actually, we're only you know a few games um, from a potential final. Let's have a look at that. But at the moment... I don't think they've got the ability to, to go for two, which is probably why he looked at one. So really, it, it turns out it's probably a more reasonable um, situation and decision for Ragnik, you know, with the um, the rather thin squad that he has. Um, Manu mentioned a little bit about uh, players coming in, uh, Chris. Um, do you see um, RB Leipzig uh, maybe getting likes of a Lookman in? in January or, or any of the other places. They seem to be linked with players all the time. Well, yeah, they are. It's whether they want to pay. Um, I think it's no secret that they quite badly upset, maybe the wrong word, annoyed Everton with their pursuit. They did it quite publicly, um, which is quite strange. They were very annoyed with Liverpool the previous year for their public pursuit and Abby Cater and they went and did it to Everton. You know, if we look back, there was the uh, Instagrams from the player saying, "Where you at, bro? Your name's still on the um, on the training doors, on the lockers." Um, and I think they would have got Adam Ola Luckman had it not been as as public. Everton, in the end, put their foot down and were like, "Actually, no, um, you're not going anywhere because you're going to make us look weak in essence." And I think that's the whole reason why they stopped him going. Now, if they want to go again for him in January. I'm pretty sure Everton will remember the way they went about it last time and will probably ask for a little bit more money. And whether Leipzig want to pay that, um, I, I'm not sure if they do. Maybe their eyes have been um, transferred other where, but, or other places. We'll have to wait and see. But they do need to bring somebody in, um, somebody more than, obviously, Tyler Adams. They need to bring someone in who, who can play now with the experience of, of, well, not either Bundesliga football or a similar league, so the Dutch or English league. You know, we'll just have to wait and see who does 
turn up in Leipzig in January. Um, guys, something that we have talked about many a times on the podcast, but actually haven't done it that much recently, is VAR. And it seemed like um, it uh, was brought up uh, many a times over the weekend, including even uh, the Hanover Mines game today. Uh, but, uh, Manu, how, how do you feel VAR's worked this season? Um, has it improved a little bit, hence we haven't sat and had to um, speak about it every week? Yeah, we didn't have to speak about it very much. Um, I think that I think that it works. Um, I think that it is that it is a good technology. We we had a lot of growing pain last year. Um, that might be the understatement um, of the year, but we had a lot of growing pain last year. Um, I think there was a few few occasions this season where I thought this this is excellent because they have a lot of silent checks, right, where they referee. Sometimes you you see it because they hold briefly. They put their the hand to the ear, and that's basically the Köln where the VAR um, is, and they check every goal and every situation. They just say like they basically just tell them good call, um, and then it just the match just keeps going, right? So there's a lot of silent checks, and I think um, it's quite good. Um, the the one the one thing about VAR, it's it's run by people, right? So mistakes happen. Um, I think the the VER decision against Marco Royce, um, I can see why he went back and looked at it. Um, and then again, I mean, this is a referee. While the play was happening, the referee didn't call it. And then he goes back and he looked at it for quite some time and then basically says, okay, well, this is a foul. And I wonder almost in that particular situation, uh, the, 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 there's the penalty for Schalke that made it 1-1. Um, that is for me a 50-50 call. So in the open play, the, the referee decided it wasn't a penalty. But when he looked at it again, he turned that 50-50 call around and made it a penalty. So that, that is something very, that's something that I find a little bit critical with, with VAR. Um, that's why I personally think if they look at the monitor, it should be, it should be limited by time. They shouldn't give, be given an, um, a lot of time. They should, let's say, like, you have 20 seconds to look at this screen. And if you were uncertain before and you're still uncertain, you stick with your call. Right? Um, I think we had quite a lot of talk about VAR, um, today because of the Hanover Mines game. And the Mateta decision and um, Hanover claiming that the Mateta call was a penalty. But, I mean, we've looked at this. Um, Chris, you posted some videos and some photos of that very situation um, into our chat. And I look at that and I, I don't really see very much wrong with that either. So I don't even know why the clubs find it so controversial. No, not, not on this one. Um, both instances when it was used... In the Hanover Mites game, I think they're they're perfectly um, valid. There is definitely contact now. Whether there's enough to bring a player down, that's that's subjective, and it's always going to be subjective because whether um, whether the referee thinks it's a, a penalty or not, he gets a call in his ear, and that will be the video assistant referee going, "Oh, you might want to check that because that looks like a penalty to me." That's a subjective decision. So then he goes and looks at the monitor again. Um, occasionally and then he'll make his decision or oh, what you know was that a penalty or oh, i'm not sure and it's it's contradicting so it's not like goal line technology where it was the ball over the line no mm -hmm. it was it was it wasn't over the line by you know a, 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 
a tenth of a centimetre or, you know, a millimetre or a half a millimetre. It's pretty simple. Either the ball is wholly over the line or it's not. That That is the easiest one to do. I didn't see anything in wrong. It looked like a penalty to me. He definitely leans into him and takes him down. Now, um, did he impede his run? Did he did the contact result in the player not being able to continue his run and, and get the shot off? Yes, that looks like a penalty. Um, the very last one for offside, it's clear that his knee is offside. And, you know, I think people forget sometimes it's any part of the body that can play the ball. Well, that can be your shoulder. You can legally shoulder the ball as long as it's the top. It's not the arm. It can come off your knee. Come off your arse, it can come off your thigh, it can come off any tar, any part of the ball, uh, any part of the body that can play the ball. Um, there'll be times when the arm is in front. That is, um, that is not offside because you can't play the ball with your arm, unless you're goalkeeper. So, I, I can see where people get hung up um, on it, but the the decisions um, for me were quite good. And, and as you said, the the Schalke penalty, Royce does does roll him, but as he rolls him, he stamps on his foot. Well, once again, that's a subjective decision. Did it stop him from getting the ball? Some referees will say yes, some referees will say no. And that's why you know, VAR isn't liked. And, and I know it's not liked in the stadium, and I know it's not liked by certain sections of the media, but the truth of the matter is it's not going anywhere. So we need to we need to not accept it, but we need to look at how it can be modified and how it can work better for everybody and uh, by just countlessly going oh VAR oh VAR oh VAR that's not actually helping the situation so um, that sort of frustrates me because it's not like a Monday night you know games where protests are going to get rid of him it's in countless leagues across the world it's coming into the Premier League it's coming into the Champions League in a knockout stages so it's pretty much not going anywhere so if the technology is being used it needs to be used properly um, and I, I can't really see an occasion this weekend where um, where it hasn't been used properly because it's a subjective opinion. Some people will say yes, some people will say no, and that will never change. Well, I think too the way people that complain about v, like the people that are say um, VAR is the culprit for our team losing, they will be the first ones to say, "Oh, if we had VAR, we would have won this game." When are we finally getting VR? Like, how many times did we have people complain about the lack of video technology in football and how it needs to be changing, etc., etc., etc.? Now we finally got it, and uh, you still have referees, you still have officials complaining about it. So, uh, I don't know. I mean, there'll I, always be people who complain about it, and you're quite yeah. right. There's, there's people, I've, I've chatted with people who, and especially fans who have said, well, you know what, the stoppages that it brings in and the extra disruption to the game and I'm celebrating a goal and I don't know if I can celebrate properly because I don't know if it's being checked. You know, it's sort of killing the game. I, I get that, but it's not going anywhere. And they will be the first person to go if their team was in the Champions League final um, and their their team gets beat 1-0 in the final second by someone who punches the ball in the back of the net with a hand. They would be the first person going, if we had VAR there, we, we wouldn't have lost or we would have been able to continue into extra time. So you can't have your cake and eat it. It just needs to be um, implemented properly. And I think the only criticism that's ever given is poor implementation of the technology, not the technology itself. But Chris, uh, you would agree with uh, with Manu and I in saying that it, it has been a much better season for VAR. Yeah, it has been a much better season for VAR. Um but I still understand the confusion in, in the stadium because unless you're watching at home on the television, it is quite hard to know what's going on. And I know there's a um, on-screen graphic at every um, big screen, 
but it still doesn't tell you what's going on. If you've got the benefit of watching at home on a television, you get the benefit of the um, the in-video replay and you get the benefit of the commentators talking about what they think it is. But if you're you know, sat on the second tier right at the back, you probably haven't seen that as he touched it with his hand there or as he clicked his ankle. So I understand why it um, annoys fans in the stadium and I think that's where it needs to be addressed better. And fans need an explanation and... I'm not a big fan of American football, and I've probably said this before with Gridiron, but the way that the umpires speak to the crowd and say, you know, number mm. 47, illegal holding 10-yard penalty, I think that's fantastic. They do it in rugby as well. Maybe it's something that's going to have to creep into football at some point. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, I was just at the Canucks game, um, not this weekend, the weekend before, and there was a there was a um, redo review on one of the players, and then the referee just skated to the middle, and he just told us what it was. Yeah, and everyone accepted that decision because it made sense. But I think that's that's basically what needs to come in. There needs to be transparency about the decisions that were made. I think if yeah. that comes in, I think if that comes in, there may be a little bit of complaints that it's getting Americanized, but it would definitely stop the problems in the stadium. If you know straight away, um, offside nine Lewandowski knee offside, bang, go yeah. play on. Yeah, at least it would give that transparency, wouldn't it? You know, for the players in the st- or for the players and the people in the stands, I suppose. But um, guys, I think that more or less does it for this week. We, we've managed to cover quite a few topics as always. So, Manu, what have you got going on this week? Another busy one. Yeah, this is a very busy week uh, for, for for the football grab network in general. Um, we have uh, the last round of Champions League matches before the winter. So um, the previews are getting getting posted as we speak. And um, they will be on footballgrad.com and foosballstart.com. So that's basically what to look out for. Um, I know Chris is on the road. Um, he's going to cover some of the games uh, live on location. And then we'll have um, so a bunch of match reports, etc. Thoughts on games um, all come your way. And that will be all we able to do. All of that will be at Football Grad Live. Yeah, very good. Always busy with football grad. Hey, I'm Chris, you're on the road. Where exactly are you going this weekend? What have you got going on? Um, well, I'm in Liverpool on Tuesday um, to cover Liverpool's game against Napoli um, and obviously the fallout for the other teams in that group. Um, look after Red Star Belgrade as part of the um, football grad network in a post-Soviet space um, and all, while also looking at Liverpool as in Klopp is a German manager. So, I'll be there to cover that. And then Wednesday night, I'm at, um, I know they said Main Road then, Bryce, you're my age. I'm at the uh, Etihad Stadium to cover um, Hoffenheim's visit to uh, Manchester City and see if they can make um, either, you know, first, second or third. Well, first is out of choice, but um, it's third, isn't it? Can they make the Europa League slots? Um, Hopefully they can. um, And I'll be there to see if they can. Yes, indeed. Always busy, you fellas. eh? And, for any listeners, as always, if you need a little bit more football in your life, head over to at Football Grad Live on Twitter or the Football Grad website. There's plenty of, well, plenty of information there for you to fill your boots. And if you want to get in touch with the likes of ourselves, well, you can obviously do that via the Football Grad Live Twitter page or any of the three of us. Um, just interact and we'll, we'll try and get involved uh, as much as we can or answer your questions. Uh, thank you very much for listening. As always, um, that does it for another week of German football. I hope you enjoyed the, the football midweek um, across Europe. Uh, and I've been your host, Bryce Dunn. You can find me on Twitter at Bryce Dunn11. 
And until then, I'll fitters in. Ich warte seit Wochen auf diesen Tag und tanz vor Freude über den Asphalt. Als wär's ein Rhythmus, als gäb's ein Lied, das mich immer weiter durch die Straßen zieht. Komm dir entgegen, mich abzuholen. It wouldn't be the holiday season if there wasn't candy, right? Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.